Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Remember the easiest way to get there is to go to New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, and just go back four books and you'll find it there. Zephaniah chapter 2, as we've been making our way through this short little book, we have seen in chapter 1 so far that God, through the prophet Zephaniah, has pronounced a judgment to come upon the entire world and specifically to come upon the people of Judah. And throughout chapter 1, we, we saw many of the reasons why because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their immoral practices, their murderous bloodshed. And here in chapter 2, one of the things I had mentioned as we began going through this book is there's interspersed throughout the book promises of restoration to come, promises of salvation. And here we have a call to repent to respond to this pronouncement of judgment that is to come. So that's what I want us to consider this morning together, is particularly the matter of repentance. And look at it together from Zephaniah chapter 2 and verses 1 just down to verse 3. So Zephaniah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Zephaniah is... Speaking here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, throughout Your Word, through the prophets, through Your law, through the narratives of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and eventually into the land of Canaan, throughout the preaching ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Throughout the writings of the apostles, we see certainly promises of grace, promises of undeserved mercy to be given to sinners. But we also see very clear pronouncements of judgment that is to come in response to sin. And when we 
hear these judgments, when our sin is laid bare, there is only one true response that we can have. And it is not to hide our sin. It is not to pretend as if it does not exist. It is to repent. You call us all throughout the Word of God to repent. And in so doing, to turn from our sin and turn to you to find grace and mercy. Lord, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that as we consider what this means, what it looks like to repent, I pray that we who know you, who in your mercy have saved us by the grace that is found in Christ, that we we would not hear this and think that repentance is something that we no longer need, but that we would continue to repent daily. I pray as well for those who do not know you. I pray that you would expose the sin that lies within the heart and that they too would repent, trust in Christ, and so be saved. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Many of you know that every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries releases updated findings of what they call state of theology among a range of different people in America. They survey Catholics, they survey mainline Protestants, evangelicals, they survey men and women people from different ethnicities and more, and they present people with theological statements, and then they ask them to agree or to disagree, or to strongly agree or to strongly disagree. They present them with a statement like, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake, and then they ask for a response, and then they put all of the answers together, they publish the findings, and and it allows you just to see the the level of understanding, or or really the, unfortunately, the lack thereof of, of understanding that many people have about basic biblical Christian beliefs. On the whole, the survey is generally pretty depressing, the results of it at least, because it shows you just how biblically illiterate and worldly even many professing Christians actually are. Statements, for example, like Jesus was a great teacher, he was not God should not be receiving 38% of evangelical respondents saying they strongly agree with that statement. There's no such thing as Christianity with a denial of the divinity of Christ. 
And yet, that's what 38%, again, of professing evangelicals believe. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was not God. With this kind of belief, if this is what you know, almost 40% of people believe, you have no Savior. You have no hope of eternal life. You're still in your sins. And there is no such thing as Christianity. Because no, more, no mere men can save sinners. We have offended God, and it is God who must rescue us, save us, give us mercy and grace. As I looked over some of the other findings this week as well, there was another statement that caught my attention. The statement was this, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Among professing evangelicals, 57% answered that they either somewhat or strongly agreed with that statement. And that's around the same numbers, the same results in this survey that, that have been there for the last eight or so years. There has not been much change either way. So again, pushing 60% of professing evangelicals who believe that human nature is basically good. We do some things here and there we're not proud of. We, we sin a little, but we're good. And most people are good. And what this tells us is that many, many evangelicals have an unbiblical and soft view of sin. Sin is seen more as a, a mistake or a, an accident. Like it's a, a moral oopsie-daisy. You know? Didn't mean to do that, but it's not rebellion. It's not wickedness. It's not pure evil. It's not satanic. It's not loyalty to Satan himself. No, it's it's... It's an exception to the rule. Most people are generally pretty good, and then sometimes we commit little sins. Human nature is basically decent, and, and what is in our hearts is, is goodwill towards all. We want to do right. We're a people of, of good intentions. Our, our heart is good. It's just that sometimes, for a variety of reasons, and, and perhaps we could blame society for most of our own faults, but, but sometimes we do things that we're not proud of. And for we who are Christians, we just need God to sort of clean up our mistakes whenever we, we make them. That's really what He's there for, right? to, to, to get the mud off of our, of our boots. Now, with such an understanding of sin and human nature, the concept of biblical repentance, of course, becomes utterly foreign. It makes no sense. It's not needed. Repentance as a word, even, has become like one of those old English words that 
hardly anyone uses anymore. Right? It's on the, the same level as hither and wither, and hollow and low. Right? This is not in Christians' common vocabulary anymore. And it's largely the result of our unbiblical views of human nature, our unbiblical views of even what it means to turn from sin and turn to God. It's a word that captures repentance is, a word that captures speaks of the whole response of the whole man towards his sin and towards God. But if sin has become a very little thing, then repentance itself likewise becomes a little unimportant thing that we ought not to talk about anymore or don't need to talk about anymore. If we have an understanding of the Bible, however, and and any knowledge of the true and wicked nature of sin, something that we even saw this morning in Sunday school as we were looking at the subject of total depravity and and how the the human fallen nature is seen throughout all of Scripture. If we have any understanding of what the Bible teaches about the nature of man as fallen and in rebellion, if we have any understanding of the holiness of God, then repentance is something we must become thoroughly acquainted with. Repentance is a grace an evangelical grace that God works within us to conform our affections and our thinking towards sin in the very manner of His own. But it is also a response to sin. It is a a duty and a command, an, an action that we must do in order to be saved from the judgment that is to come. It is the call that goes out to all people when the gospel is proclaimed and when the message of judgment is announced as well, that God has fixed the day on which He will judge all men. It is the response that Christians are then to call the world to do, to repent of their sins. So we have to know what repentance is, what's involved in it. And in our passage this morning from Zephaniah 2, we can see what all is involved in this very act of repentance. So far, as I mentioned earlier, we have seen in chapter 1 that God is warning all of these Nations, all people everywhere, and he's warning the people of Judah as well about the wrath that is coming upon them because of their sin. And when we come to chapter 2, the first three verses here are a call to respond to that very news. It's a call to respond to what we just heard in chapter 1. When we hear that judgment is coming because of sin, what are we to do? 
Well, we're to repent. That's our action. That's our response. And Zephaniah here is calling the people of Judah in particular to repent. But he does so with a variety of images and commands, all of which, when we put them together, together, give us a greater understanding of what is involved in the work of repentance. We find that in repentance there are at least two things that we must recognize and acknowledge and two things that we must do. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. These two things that we must acknowledge and the two things that we must do in true biblical repentance. So let's first consider these two things that we are to recognize and acknowledge. Now, the first is that you must recognize in repentance, you must recognize and acknowledge that you are worthy of judgment. You're not worthy of salvation. You're worthy in what is owed to you because of sin is judgment. That has to be recognized and acknowledged. A recognition that you deserve eternal judgment. Which is to say that when you are truly repenting of sin, you are not trying to make light of it. You're not trying to downplay it in any way. You're not trying to hide it in any way. No, you are recognizing that your sin, no matter how small the world may say it is, your sin is worthy of judgment. Now, look with me at verse 1 again, and notice what Zephaniah says. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Now, Zephaniah uses a very interesting word here for gather together, if you're looking at the the ESV in particular. It's a word that's usually related to the word stubble. And in fact, in every other occurrence word throughout the Old Testament, it has the idea of gathering stubble or gathering straw, sticks together. For example, the same word is used in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10, when we're told about Elijah going to the city of Zarephath. And we read that when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. It's the same word that's used here in, in Zephaniah. And so, if we wanted to bring out this idea even more, we could translate this as the NET Bible does. They, they put it this way. They say, bunch yourselves together like straw. Gather yourselves together like a bunch of straw. And the image of gathering straw together here is intentional. Zephaniah is not simply calling the people to assemble together. He's not simply calling them to to become a congregation. He wants them also to see something about themselves. 
He wants them to see, to understand the danger that they are in. Now, you all know that right across the street from here, right, we have this, this field where you know, a farmer plants wheat and, and corn and probably some other things I'm not even aware of because I'm not really a farmer, right? But he, he plants like different crops every single year. And just this past week, the farmer has started you know, cutting down all of the, the, the stalks and clearing the field. Now, if we were to walk across the field, uh, or, or across the street into the field, and we were to, to look down, right, what, what would we see there? What would we see on the ground? We'd see all of the stubble. We'd see the, the straw, right? And, and if we were to gather that together, what, what could we use that for? Well, it wouldn't have many uses, but it's small, it's dry, and it's highly flammable. If I wanted to start a fire, it would make for very good tinder. And all throughout Scripture, when this word is used of gathering together like straw, the, the, the straw that is gathered is used for tinder. That's the image that Zephaniah is bringing out here. The people of Judah are to assemble together, but when they do, they must recognize that they are not assembling together as some great and powerful nation. They're not assembling together as some righteous people whom God is pleased with. No, they are nothing but stubble. They're tender for a fire that is to come. And if they do not respond to the warnings of God rightly, they will be consumed in a moment by what is explicitly stated here, the burning anger of the Lord. They will go up in flames because they have not recognized who they are, what they have done. I want you to notice also that Zephaniah refers to the people of Judah as a shameless nation. There's also an interesting image here that Zephaniah uses. The, The word that he uses speaks of the face growing ill. It's It's losing its color. And this happens when someone is filled with shame. They have a sickly look about them. They've been caught in some shameful act and they they look now as if they could vomit at any moment. We find the same idea in Isaiah 29, verse 22, where God is promising there a coming day of salvation for His people Israel. And He says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. The idea is the same here in Zephaniah 2 verse 1. Only the nation of Judah has no pale faces at all. They are a people who are without shame. Of course, Zephaniah is speaking of this shamelessness as if it is a bad thing. Which tells us also something else about what a 
truly repentant people are to be. What it should involve. Repentance should involve a measure of shame. There should be deep sorrow over sin. When we sin, we have sinned against Almighty God. We have sworn allegiance to the devil. We have joined forces with darkness. We have done something that required the crucifixion of the Son of God in order for it to be for. That's the level of evil that we commit whenever we sin in actions or in mind. We have not merely tripped over a loose shoelace and accidentally made a mistake. We have committed spiritual adultery against God. So there should be contrition and brokenness. I mean, just think what sort of cold-hearted individual would you have to be if you committed adultery against your own spouse and you didn't care? You had no remorse. We look at someone like that and say they're almost like a psychopath. (coughs) Should feel remorse properly in those situations, and it's the same when we commit adultery against God. You should be horrified at it. And yet, Judah, in this case, was not. And how often is it the case that we sin and we care not because of the hardness of our own hearts? There should be a measure of brokenness over our sin. And so repentance, friends, involves a recognition that we have committed a great evil, that we are worthy of judgment and a and a horror at our very own sin should be present. There's also another thing that we must recognize in repentance, which is the urgency of it. The urgency of it. Repentance repentance is not something that should be delayed. We must not put it off and presume that we have some time in the distant future to repent. We we must not presume that God in His patience will give us yet another day and then we can repent. But as of right now, it's not all that necessary. No. True repentance recognizes that I have to act now. I have sinned against God now, and it has come to light now, and I must turn and repent of sin now, lest I be swept away in the judgment 
of God. <coughs> we can see this very aspect of repentance as well in verse 2. Zephaniah says again, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Then he speaks of the urgency. Notice verse 2. Before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, in verse 2, the decree here refers to the prophetic announcement about God's coming judgments. Because Judah, in particular, had acted so sinfully, because, as we have seen, they corrupted the temple of God, because they mixed together the worship of the Lord with the worship of false gods like Baal, (coughs) excuse me, Because they also, in their devotion to these false gods and the ways of the nations, were bloodthirsty and offered up their own children as sacrifices to these gods. Because they had polluted their ways, God told them that He was going to destroy them. And His destructive judgments would come on what we have seen is called the day of the Lord. And that's what Zephaniah is speaking of here. This day is approaching. It is coming with speed. And he's calling the people of Judah to repent before the day arrives. He's urging them no longer to delay. He's telling them that if they wait for a single moment, It will be too late. They have to do it now. And he's using this image of chaff to impress upon them how urgent it is for them to repent. Now, if you think about just the image of of chaff for a moment, of course this is an agricultural image as well, and it's what's of course separated from the grain when it is winnowed, and and you can in the air, and when the the wind is is blowing, the the chaff is is blown away uh, uh, like dust. Um, I don't think probably most of us are too familiar with throwing chaff up in in the air, but we can think of something else that's very similar to this that we've probably all once done before. Um, Think about dandelions. Everybody likes dandelions. You get a weird urge every time you see a dandelion to go pick it. And it's got this little cotton ball looking thing on it. And what do you want to do? You just want to blow it, you know? And when you blow it, you just watch all the little seeds go, right? It, well, it's the same idea, right? When, when you blow on that dandelion, those seeds are carried away by the wind. And <clears throat> sometimes those seeds can be carried for two, three miles. I didn't know that. I had to look up some stuff about dandelions this week because I was thinking about that. Two miles. The wind can just carry it away as fast as it is blowing. 
So the, the image is, is very similar. Zephaniah is painting a picture of, of the wind blowing. And, and, and it blowing on and through chaff, or for our purposes, a dandelion. And can you avoid the wind? No. As fast as that wind is blowing, that's how fast the chaff or the dandelion seed is coming. And that's what Zephaniah is saying. This is the speed at which God's judgment is coming. It is upon you at this very moment. You can't outrun it. You can't hide from it. You can't avoid it. It is coming. And you must repent because of that at this very moment. Zephaniah's point to the people of Judah is that they must repent now before that day comes and the people who are like stubble are consumed by the fire of God's judgment. And that urgent call to repent now is still the same for us today. (coughs) Friends, we know, we, we, we have no idea when the return of Christ will be. But even more than that, we have no idea when we will breathe our last breath. We can live as if we are our own sovereigns. As if we're the ones who are controlling the beating of our own hearts. Of course, when's when's the last time that you've, you've thought about exercising the muscle of your heart? every single second it beats. You don't. You don't control that. It's the Lord who does. It's the Lord who gives you every single breath that you breathe. And if in His sovereignty He determines that the appointed time for your last breath is this afternoon or tomorrow, there is nothing that you can do to stop it. In truth, we do not know the time that God has appointed for our death. And if we wait to repent of our sins, if we think to ourselves, I still have some time. It's okay for me to continue to live in sin. It's okay to continue to conceal my wickedness. And at some point later, I will repent What our hearts are actually revealing is that we truly have no intention of repenting at all. We don't want that. We'd rather have our sin. And we will delay and delay until suddenly the sovereign hand of God determines that it is time for judgment. And if we are found in a state of rebellion at that moment, if we are as stubble in that moment, then when the fire of God's judgment comes, we will be consumed by His holiness, by His burning anger. We are warned throughout the Word. We are warned in the New Testament it is a fearful thing fall into the hands of the living God. And of course, most particularly, if you do not know Him, and you do not have His grace, and your sins have not been covered by the blood of Christ.
Christ. The warning that goes forth now about the coming day of judgment is a warning that calls us to repent of our sins now. The urgency is great. And if you are remaining in unbelief and rebellion at this very moment, you are testing God's patience. Not understanding that as Paul put it, and as Peter put it, God's patience, God's kindness is intended to is not a good thing to presume upon it. So you must see your sin for what it is, and you must recognize that you have offended a holy God. You must recognize the pressing need to respond with a holy response to the warnings of God's Word. Which leads us next to the two things that you must do in repentance. When the Bible calls us to repent, it is not only a call to have sorrow over our sin. We know that even unbelievers can have sorrow over sin, but it leads to no change in their lives or it leads to no change in their relationship to God. When the Bible calls us to repent, it is also calling us to do two things. And the first is that we would seek after God. We would seek after the one whom we've sinned against. We'd go to Him. When you repent of your sin, you must seek God. And this is what Zephaniah says here in chapter 2, verse Three, he speaks to these people who are under the judgment of God. He speaks to these people upon whom the day of the Lord is coming. And he says to them, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Now, what does it mean to seek God? Does it mean that he's hidden somewhere? You've got to go find him? He's behind a tree or under a rock? Of course not. That's not what the idea is here. Really, to seek God is is just another way that the Bible speaks of trusting in the Lord and loving Him. Just as we're told to come to Him and to inquire of Him and even to drink of Him and to eat of Him. These are These are all terms and images that speak to us about the many aspects of having a relationship with God. In Psalm chapter 40, verse 16, for example, we read, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And then the parallel line gives further clarification, definition on what it means to seek. He says, May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. So here are those who seek God or those who rejoice in Him. They are those who, who love His salvation. 
They praise Him. They find Him to be full of glory and of beauty. Their hearts desire to know Him even more, to, to walk with Him and to please Him. And so when we repent of our sin, we are on the one hand to turn away from our sin. That we should hate it. We should be ashamed of it. We should want nothing to do with it ever again. But we don't stop there. That's not repentance. Repentance also involves a positive turning to God. Trusting in Him. Loving Him. There are all kinds of people who have sinned greatly and are ashamed of their sin. They have done things that even unbelievers would say. These are terrible things. You should never do these. We should lock people away who do these very things. And and maybe something happens in their life. Maybe they go to prison. Maybe they lose their job. Maybe they lose their family. They, They suffer the consequences, the worldly consequences of their sin. Something happens where they suffer in this life. And so, what happens? They often feel terrible about it. They they swear it off. They'll never sin that way again. A lot of times, people who are addicted to drugs do this very thing. They, They can swear off the use of drugs. And they may never use drugs ever again. But still, they remain in their unbelief. Still, they remain those who are alienated from God because they do not turn to Him. They have gone about having a personal, moral reformation in their life. They have made changes to their behavior, but still their hearts remain cold towards God. They may have just changed from being the the prodigal son to the self-righteous brother. But they didn't actually come to the Lord. And friends, this is not repentance. This is nothing more than exchanging one set of sins for another set that are more respectable in the world. It is merely exchanging one idol for another. In true repentance, you must seek God. And it is this seeking God which then leads to the second thing that we must do in repentance, which is seeking after righteousness. So in verse 3, again, Zephaniah says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There are, of course, many people who have embraced a distorted view of the Gospel and the grace of God, believing that coming to God and trusting in God and being justified before Him provides them a license to live in sin. God is love, they say. And and what that means is that He tolerates and accepts everything I do. I can keep living in sin because I have the grace of God now in Christ. As long as I keep my church attendance, 
or as long as I'm baptized, or as long as I pray, as long as I do this or that, God will accept me for who I am. My sins are forgiven in the past, present, and future. And so there's no requirement for me to be obedient to His commands. That's legalism. You obey God's Word. That's legalism. There's often the charge. And yet, what do we find all throughout the Word of God? What do we find in both the Old and the New Testaments? What do we find in the prophets and in Jesus and in the preaching and the writings of the apostles? We find them all demanding obedience. We find God speaking through them to the world, calling for obedience. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says there, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 21, again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Friends, true faith and, and true repentance is revealed as being true by the obedience that flows from it. It is legalism when you add commands and traditions to the Word of God and require obedience to those additions from other people. It is legalism and self-righteousness when you believe that your Obedience is what makes you righteous before God. But it is not legalism to turn from your sin. And it is not legalism to trust in God and to obey His Word. That's simply a matter of doing righteousness. Of doing what you're called to do. It's what repentance requires of us. Now, again, there's always a danger. And I think we have to recognize this. There's always a danger in getting the order wrong. And I want you to hear me clearly on this this morning. It is not your obedience that makes you righteous before God. It is not your obedience that earns favor with God. It is not your obedience that merits the forgiveness of God in any way. That would be a matter of works righteousness. And works righteousness will deceive you and send you to hell. Because you will never be righteous enough to stand before a perfect, holy God on your own merits. That's why you need another. There is a danger in making that error. But the right gospel order is what we find here in Zephaniah. You seek God first. You go to the Lord. You trust in Him. When you recognize that you're a sinner and that you're worthy of judgment because of your sin, You do not respond by trying to clean up your own life. No, you humble yourself 
before God. You cast yourself at His feet. You cry out to Him for grace and mercy. You trust in Him and seek Him and love Him. You you look to the Savior and the provision that God has made for your sins. You look to the Son of God and the work He accomplished on behalf of sinners on the cross. You look to His righteousness and you receive His righteousness <coughs> excuse me, as a gift received by faith. Right? That, that's what you must do first. That is the proper order. But what we find throughout Scripture is that when a person truly trusts in the Lord, when they repent of their sin and seek God, their hearts are changed. God does a work in them. Indeed, we know, I mean, if we're going to be technically correct, the only reason they seek Him to begin with is because He seeks them first. But, but when somebody comes to the Lord, what happens? The Lord changes them. He gives them a new heart. He removes that stony, dead heart and He gives them a living heart. One that beats. One of flesh. And one that as it beats, it sends out through the veins the truths of the Gospel. And a love for Christ. And a desire to obey Him. And to delight in His Word. The commandments of God, which at one time stood over him to condemn him, now become his greatest joy. He recognizes that these lead me in the paths of righteousness, and they lead me ultimately to the very presence of God. In other words, obedience to God flows out of a love for God. It is never the other way around. We do not obey in order to be loved by God. Rather, we obey because God has loved us and we in turn have come to love Him. And this is what God calls all people everywhere to do. You can think about, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, what the Apostle Paul said to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. He said, there the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This is a universal warning and call that goes out to all people, all nations. The day of the Lord is coming and it is approaching quickly. And the God of heaven and earth calls you to repent. You must see your sin for what it is. And you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And you must recognize that your sins have separated you from God. And as you see this, you do not run away and try and hide. 
like Adam in the garden. There's no hiding. There's no covering up of sin. God lays everything bare. He knows all the the deeds we have committed, all of the thoughts we have thought. He knows the depths of our own depravity even greater than we know it ourselves. So you do not hide or make light of it. No, what you do is you come to the light. It is God Himself who's calling you to come. But when you send the gifts, He's the one who's saying, you come, you come. You come to the light and that's where you go. You come in humility before God. You seek Him. You confess to Him. You say with the depths of your own heart, my God, I have sinned against you. I'm worthy of nothing more than your wrath. I have done nothing to deserve any grace or any mercy or salvation. I deserve only judgment because of my sin. And you confess that before Him. Then, in humility, on your knees, you cry out to Him for forgiveness. Lord, on the basis of your promises, on the basis of what you have done for sinners like me, on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross, on that basis alone, and not on the basis of anything I have done or could do, on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, forgive me. And the promise that we have in the Word of God is that God will be gracious. And the very wrath that was due to you will be the wrath that was poured out upon His Son so that nothing will remain for you except for eternal life and righteousness in His presence. It's a marvelous gospel. It's a marvelous word that we have that the very one whom we've done evil to is the one who seeks us out and calls us to come to him and promises us that if we seek him, we will find him and have life in his name. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for the promises that we have in it. That though we are as stubble that could be consumed in a moment because of our sin, you have made a way for us to be covered, for our sins to be atoned for. You have given to us an ark that carries us safely through the waters of your judgment. And that ark is Christ. And so, Lord, we are grateful that even though our sin, rightly so, should bring us shame, that even though we are broken over it, you you lift us up when we fall down before You, when we are upon our knees, when our face is on the ground, You send the Word 
to stand up and to rise in your presence because we have received the grace of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here. I pray for those who, who know you and have already known your tremendous grace. I pray that we would not drift back into self-righteousness or into sin without repentance, but that day after day we would see repentance as the grace that it is that leads to righteousness and life. And again, Lord, I ask for those who do not know you that they would seek you, that they would hear this word, the provision that is to be found for sinners, all sinners, and that they would humble themselves and seek you and be found. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.